Hi there. Welcome to Airwave, a student-led anesthesia podcast for pre-clerk and junior clerk medical students. My name is Peru, and I'm a second-year medical student at McMaster University. Today, I'm joined by my co-host, Alexa. We really hope you enjoyed our first series of episodes, where we spoke a little bit about anesthesia as a specialty and chatted with Dr. Centifanti to get his perspective about anesthesiology as a career path. If you're new to our podcast, we're currently on the first episode of our second series, which focuses on an approach to general anesthesia. We'd recommend you listen to the first mini-series just to make sure you're up to speed, but if you're comfortable with listening to episodes about certain topics, that's okay too. Today's episode will focus on the preoperative evaluation. Now I'm so excited for it. Hi everyone, my name is Alexa and I'm a third year medical student at McMaster University. And thanks again for tuning in. As we approach the topic of general anesthesia, you might think to yourself, well, why do you need to see the patient? I mean, can't I get all the information on the medical record beforehand? And isn't the point just to put them to sleep and go straight to the OR? Well, the answer is a little bit more complicated than that. The thing about anesthesia is it's all about having a good plan. And that starts before you even get to the operating room. So as we go through today's case, we want you to see yourself performing the steps of the preoperative evaluation that we'll be describing and try and get a visual picture of the steps that you'll go through with the patient and focus why each step is important. And as always, just before we get started, we'd like to thank Drs. Nick Timmerman, Jordan Albom, and Sean Ja, as well as Dr. Daniel Cordovani for their ongoing support of this project. And without further ado, here's this week's case. Your next patient is a 38-year-old female in good physical condition, undergoing an elective laparoscopic tubal ligation. She has no significant past medical history, and review of systems is unremarkable. Her previous surgeries include a tonsillectomy at age 6, with no known anesthetic or operative complications. Current medications include oral contraceptives and multivitamins, and she has no known drug allergies. She ate her last meal at 8 p.m. yesterday and has been NPO since. Physical exam reveals a Malampati Class 1 airway, three finger breaths, thyromental distance, and good neck extension. Dentition appears normal with no caps, crowns, or loose teeth. Cardiac and respiratory exams are normal, and urine pregnancy tests are negative. She has a BMI of 25. Catch all that? It's pretty quick, right? Well, there's no need to worry. We'll break it all down step by step. But really, in that paragraph, there's a ton of valuable information that'll help you assess a patient before they go off to the OR. But what you need to know is that there are four main steps of an anesthesia pre-op evaluation. Remember those four steps and you'll do just great. Okay, so the first step of an anesthetic pre-op assessment is to confirm the patient's identifiers and confirm their NPO status. And this part might sound a little silly, but it's super important. The last thing you want to end up in is a situation where a patient with a similar name and age as another patient goes in for the wrong procedure. 
Additionally, you want to make sure that the patient is NPO. What is NPO, you might ask? I know medicine is full of acronyms, but I digress. NPO stands for nil per os, or in English, nothing by mouth. Put simply, no eating or drinking anything before surgery. Now, why is that important, you might ask? Let's think about it from an anesthetic standpoint. Keeping a patient NPO prevents the risk of vomiting, which is actually a very common side effect of some anesthetic drugs. And because it prevents the risk of vomiting, it also prevents the risk of accidentally breathing in or aspirating some of that vomit. A lot of the risk of vomiting during induction or putting a patient to sleep has to do with insufflating the stomach with air during mechanical ventilation, as well as loss of upper esophageal sphincter tone, and the fact that our patients are lying supine. So keeping a patient NPO ensures that patients have enough time to empty their stomach contents and decrease acid production so that when esophageal sphincter tone is lost, the contents of the stomach don't regurgitate upwards and enter the lungs. This is especially important for patients who might be obese, pregnant, or who might be taking opioids or benzodiazepines. A good rule of thumb here is the 2468 rule. And that basically summarizes that a patient should not have any clear fluids two hours before, any breast milk four hours before, any light meals or infant formula six hours before, and any meat or high fat meal eight hours before surgery. And I know patients can sometimes get frustrated at the fact that they can't eat before surgery, but like Peru said, it is super important. And I'd like to add, it's really important to make sure that a patient is being honest about their MPO status. So you, if you have any doubt, you really need to press with that patient that they need to be honest with you. Now, the second step of an anesthesia pre-op assessment is to take a focused anesthetic history. A helpful place to look to guide you along is the pre-op checklist, but each hospital might have a different version of this. So read it over before you go to see your patient. But remember, the idea of taking a focused history is to, first of all, get an idea of some possible complications to incorporate as part of your anesthetic plan. Two, build a relationship with your patient and get to know them. And three, evaluate the patient's health to see if they're optimized for surgery. Now, what does optimized mean? That can seem pretty vague and definitely depends on the context. But a good way to think about it is that if there were any treatments, tests, or consults that this patient needs before proceeding to surgery, that gets done. And even if patients are sick, but there aren't any outstanding investigations, treatments, or consults, it still might be okay to proceed. And this might also change whether this is done in the preoperative clinic, uh, way in ahead of the surgery, or if you're just seeing the, the patient a few minutes prior to them going to the OR. All right. So the second step is of taking a focus history it might be kind of long, but try to stick with us. Let's start with the review of systems. You want to ask about the five main relevant body systems here. So those are the cardiovascular system, respiratory, GI, GU, neurological systems, and as a bonus, endocrine. For the cardiac history, you want to ask about any chest pain, shortness of breath, heart disease, hypertension, heart failure, valve disease, and their exercise tolerance in METs, or metabolic equivalents. 
We won't go into METs in too much detail here, but just remember that anything above four METs exercise tolerance is considered high risk. In the absence of a previous cardiac workup, a quick and easy way to evaluate this is to ask your patient if they can go up a set of stairs and not get short of breath, which would be about four METs. If they can do that, it's definitely a reassuring sign. Now, once you've assessed the cardiovascular system, the next system that you want to ask about is the respiratory system and ask about any history of asthma or chronic obstructive pulmonary disease. You also want to ask if the patient has a smoking history and evaluate their risk for OSA or obstructive sleep apnea. Obstructive sleep apnea is commonly screened with the stop-bang mnemonic, which you might have already encountered, and we also encourage you to look this up. You'll also want to ask about any recent respiratory infections, and especially in the time of COVID, this is really important. So moving on, as you take your GI history, ask about any issues which may increase the risk of aspiration, such as gastroesophageal reflux disease or heartburn. In addition to asking about any history of liver disease, you should also look up the patient's recent blood work, especially if there are any concerns regarding coagulation abnormalities on history. Now for the next G on the list, it's time to look at the GU history and asking specifically about kidney disease, because this can affect a patient's blood pressure and electrolyte homeostasis. And you might get an idea of this, like Prue mentioned, with reviewing the blood work beforehand. And you also need to consider that renal disease may also impact a patient's ability to metabolize or clear medications, which obviously has really important implications for anesthetic dosing. And some ways that you can ask your patients about this includes asking if they're on dialysis or if they're seeing a kidney specialist or a nephrologist. A creatinine or an estimated glomerular filtration rate is also routinely ordered for many patients in the pre-op period. So again, make sure to check those values if there's any concerns identified on history. So finally, for the neurological history, you can ask about any previous strokes, TIAs, seizures, or concussions. If you're considering any non-general anesthesia modalities as part of your anesthetic plan, for example, like a spinal, it may also be important to inquire about pre-existing peripheral neuropathy, numbness, or tingling. And that's especially important to know in patients who have a history of diabetes. Speaking of diabetes, when you get to review the endocrine system, Ask if the patient has diabetes and if they take their medication consistently to see how well controlled their blood sugar is. And that answer can sometimes surprise you. And this is important because high serum glucose can result in large swings in blood pressure and heart rate intraoperatively. And it can also increase the risk of infection. When taking an endocrine history, you also need to ask about thyroid disease, and keep in mind that hypothyroidism can cause an exaggerated response to anesthetics, and conversely, hyperthyroidism can increase the risk of perioperative thyroid storm, and that can be very, very bad. Wow, all right. Everybody still with us? 
I know it's definitely a lot to absorb, so feel free to pause, rewind, and listen to parts of this episode again. A lot of this will come with practice, so hang tight and I promise we'll get through this together. So now that you've finished your review of systems, you want to take a good past medical and surgical history. What's important to pay attention to here is any preoperative or rather perioperative complications associated with any previous surgery. So for example, a difficult airway and especially bleeding as well as any issues with anesthetic drugs. You also want to ask your patient about their dental history. Ask about any caps, crowns, missing teeth, etc. Because when a patient undergoes endotracheal intubation, meaning a breathing tube is inserted into their trachea, there's always a risk of damage to their teeth. And even though it usually isn't life-threatening, ask your patient about postoperative nausea and vomiting. This can influence your patient's disposition and discharge and can have important implications for surgeries like hernia repair, for instance, because vomiting severely increases intra-abdominal pressure, which might not be ideal in those kinds of situations. Finally, it's important to ask your patient about any history of pseudocholinesterase deficiency and malignant hyperthermia, because both of these can affect the medications you use intraoperatively and can change your anesthetic management plan top to bottom. Now, to delve a little further into that, pseudocholinesterase deficiency can increase a patient's sensitivity to neuromuscular agents and anesthesia, while malignant hyperthermia can be lethal and requires a careful use of anesthetic drugs. So it's really important to ask about that. And we'll talk more about this in future episodes. But for now, it's important that you ask these on history because it will affect your anesthetic plan. And like we said earlier in this episode, the whole point of a preoperative history is that you make the best plan for the patient. The other thing that you want to ask about is the patient's medications and allergies. And things that you really want to make sure not to miss is if they're on antiplatelet or anticoagulants, if they're on blood pressure medications, if they're on inhalers, or if they're on drugs to control their blood glucose, in addition to steroids. And also be sure to ask about any recent or ongoing antibiotic use and what they were on those antibiotics for to begin with. Okay, we're almost there, I promise. Just two more steps to go. Step three of the pre-op assessment is to perform a physical exam. As always, starting with an inspection, you want to assess your patient's overall physical condition and get their vital signs. Don't be too alarmed if their blood pressure is a little elevated. I mean, after all, I might get a little nervous if Alexa was doing all these checks on me, but just be mindful of their blood pressure and oxygen saturation especially. Is that a comment on my physical exam skills? Alexa, I think you're fantastic. (laughs) So in the physical exam, there are four assessments you want to focus on. The airway assessment, cardiovascular exam, respiratory exam, and neurological exam. For the airway assessment, remember that you're looking to check if your patient will have a difficult bag mask ventilation and a difficult airway. So those two things. To break that down, to check if your patient might have a difficult bag mask ventilation, you can use the Bones mnemonic. So look for B for beard, O for obesity, N for no teeth, E for if the patient is elderly, and S ask if they snore. Now, to check if your patient might have a difficult airway, there's five steps. 
The first is a mile and patty score, which is the most sensitive predictor of a difficult airway. The score is based on how well you can see the patient's soft palate with their mouth open. So you ask the patient to open their mouth and stick their tongue out and then give a grade from one to four to assess the difficulty of endotracheal intubation. The second step is to ask the patient to open and close their mouth to see if they have any TMJ pain and to check the distance between the top and bottom teeth. For the third step, you want to ask the patient to look up with their chin pointing to the ceiling. Physically check their thyromental distance to see if it's at least three finger breaths. And for the fourth step, you can ask the patient to bite their upper lip and see if they're able to protrude their mandible out to fully bite that lip, which will often result in some pretty funny faces and actually requires a lot more coordination than you might think. But if they can't do that, it's a pretty specific sign of a potentially difficult laryngoscopy. And lastly, for the fifth step, you want to check for C-spine mobility. That one's pretty easy. Ask your patient to flex and extend their neck and move it side to side. And while this might seem like a lot of information, and admittedly it is, it gets easier. And soon enough, you'll be at the shopping mall or at the grocery store, and you'll be looking around and you'll be able to say, oh, that looks like a difficult airway. Or you'll definitely get there after a couple anesthesia electives, or at least I did. (laughs) That's pretty funny, Alexa. So now that you've checked the patient's airway assessment, The second assessment to perform here is the cardiovascular exam. Now, the big idea here is that you want to take a close listen to their heart. So check for heart rate, rhythm, and normal heart sounds. Particularly, make note of any murmurs and be sure to describe them to your staff. The third assessment is the respiratory exam. So note any signs of labored breathing on inspection and auscultate to check for equal air entry bilaterally. Also know if there's any wheezes or any crackles. And as a pro tip, if the patient has a back deformity like scoliosis, remember that this increases the risk of restrictive lung disease. So pay special attention to that during your auscultation. All right, so the final assessment that we want to do here is the neurological exam. Normally, this is almost exclusively done for patients who might have like a pre-existing neurological condition like a stroke or a seizure. And now I know this can be a little scary and and kind of overwhelming, especially for the pre-clerks listening to this who may not have learned the neuro exam just yet. And trust me, I only learned it a few months ago. But for simplicity, you can stick to the basics. Check for any abnormal posture, tremor, or rigidity. Briefly check for sensation in the upper and lower extremities, as well as the general motor function of each limb. And now that you've done your history and physical exam, you should have a good idea of what their ASA classification is. Your preceptor will ask you all the time, what is the ASA of the patient? And the ASA system, or the American Society of Anesthesiologists Physical Status Classification, is a six-item score of a patient's physical status to determine their level of risk during an anesthetic procedure. So ASA-1 includes healthy patients. ASA-2 describes patients with mild to moderate disease that is well controlled with medication. ASA-3 describes severe disease which limit activity but aren't entirely incapacitating. 
ASA4 means there is a severe incapacitating disease that constantly threatens a patient's life. And ASA5 describes patients near the point of death who may not survive 24 hours with or without operation. So think ruptured AAA, for example. And finally, ASA6 describes patients who are brain dead and whose organs are being removed for donation. A good exercise is to think of what the patient's ASA status might be and check if it's any different than what's recorded by the anesthetist on the patient's pre-op appointment form. Make sure you note their current ASA on the patient's chart, and like I said, convey that to your staff. All right, now finally, we're on to the last step of the pre-op assessment. Take a deep breath, but don't celebrate just yet. This step is really, really crucial. You need to discuss the risks of the anesthesia and obtain informed consent. Usually this is done during the patient's formal pre-op appointment before they even come into the hospital for surgery. So be sure to read up on what the anesthetist has written on the patient's chart. But still, you need to explain the anesthetic plan and the potential risks to your patient. What are those risks? Well, you might ask. Well, when we put anything into patients' mouths, like endotracheal tubes, for instance, there's always a risk to the patient's teeth, roughly 1 in 1,000. Other common risks include postoperative nausea and vomiting, a sore throat, and postoperative pain. We always try our best to minimize the risk of post-op pain by dosing the analgesic medications properly, but we'll save that for a future episode. Finally, you want to make sure that the patient understands these risks and provides liberal consent. Ensure that if this is a high-risk procedure for something like blood loss, for instance, the patient also consents to receiving blood transfusions if required. And that's it. Now you're done. You successfully completed a pre-op assessment for your patient. Thanks so much for listening to this week's episode of the Airwave Podcast. We know this is a little different from the focus of the first series of episodes, and it's totally okay if you didn't catch everything the first time. Just to recap, today we talked about the four main steps of the pre-op assessment. One, confirming the patient's identifiers and their NPO status. Two, a focused history. Three, a focused physical exam. And four, discussing the risks and obtaining informed consent. And like we mentioned throughout this episode, we realize that's a lot, but practice truly does make perfect. And be sure to replay the parts of the episode with which you might not totally be comfortable with yet. And remember that the big idea behind the pre-op assessment is to understand the patient's suitability for surgery and the risks you might face intraoperatively and postoperatively. Now, also be sure to follow us on Twitter at Airwave Podcast and check out our website where we'll post show notes and some great resources for extra learning. And join us for our next episode where we'll take a deeper dive into setting up the OR and getting everything ready for your patient as they arrive for surgery. And until next time, keep working hard, stay healthy, stay safe, take some nice deep breaths, and count back from 10.